Welcome to this week's episode of Seen and Heard Industry Updates for the Modern Dairy Family. I'm Darby Toth, the Technical Services Field Representative with Western United Dairies. And I'm Melissa Lima, the North Coast and Organic Field Services Representative with Western United Dairies. And we're bringing this episode to you right before we head into a three-day weekend. So happy Memorial Day, everyone. Yeah, happy Memorial Day. Looking forward to a little bit of relaxing, even though I feel like a lot of people's travel plans are stunted a little bit more than usual. Yeah, it seems like uh, I've heard a lot of people trying to head out to the coast or the beach, um, staying in their little shelter-in-place groups for safety, but I think we all deserve a little, little break from the quarantine this weekend in the safest manner possible. I agree. I'm going to head up to the mountains for a little bit and then come back and hopefully do some grilling on Monday. Oh, nice. I think uh, I think grilling is on our agenda, too, and it's uh, strawberry season is in full swing up here. So plenty of whipped cream and strawberries in the plan and maybe a little extra cheese on everything this weekend. So um, speaking of, we have a pretty full episode, Darby. Um, lots going on today. Um, a little bit of good information to write us into the long weekend. Yeah, we just got finished um, with our board meeting yesterday, so kind of went through a lot of things, and I'm going to share a little bit of that, I'm sure, with Annie and Steph today. We're going to start off with Annie's market update, um, and then we're going to bring right into Paul Souza, who's going to give us an environmental update, and he's going to talk about the CV Salt program, which is going to start kicking off next week. And then you, Melissa, got to sit down with Mark Krebsbach of Western Milling to chat about what's up with the feed market these days. Yeah, and then um, we popped in with Jason just this afternoon for a quick update from Sacramento. Those of you that don't know Jason Bryant, he's our Sacramento lobbyist um, and government affairs guru. So we got a chance to visit with Jason a little bit. And yeah, it was really nice to sit with Mark. Um, He's a colleague of mine from my ag leadership days and he was so sweet to agree to sit down and visit with us and answer some of dairymen's burning questions about what the feed market is doing in light of coronavirus. Yeah, when you sit down with Jason, make sure to ask him about his owl boxes. I think he's been on some uh, quarantine oh. projects I got to hear about at the board meeting yesterday. Oh, I can't wait because I, in fact, have an owl box. So <laughs> we, may, <laughs> we may get way off of what Anya wants us to talk about, but it'll hopefully at least be entertaining. <laughs> exactly. I think we're going to jump in with Annie's market update. We'll throw it over to Annie. Well, there has been a lot going on in dairy markets in the past week, and a lot of it actually shed some good news. So I'll get started on it. Um, Commodities really have been jumping up, and I'm here for it. Uh, The CME is really where most of the good news stands from. Um, The price improvements from the prior weeks, I've been talking about this now for a few weeks, it continues to translate into increases for USDA prices. And so this week, we've seen really big jumps on butter and cheese. Uh, USDA's butter price notably had the biggest jump by nearly 13 cents from a week ago. What's even more encouraging is that the CME butter price continued to have as much energy as, uh, I don't know, a toddler that's been stuck inside during the quarantine. Um, it gained 12 cents over the last week um, and is now at $1.63.50. Um, cheese prices, just about the same. They have been racing for first place. Uh, block and barrel both have been going up. Uh, the USDA's block price gained $0.08 cents this week, and um, we're and actually barrels also gained $0.08, cents, and they're both really close to each other, around like $1.20, $0.21 per pound. Um, but even the CME, I just mentioned, butter prices were going crazy cheese prices were even better. Uh, block prices literally bounced off the walls $1.92 per pound. That's up 34 cents from last week. And that brings us back really to prices pre-COVID-19 crisis. And barrels also jumped 35 cents. Um, so we've got, you know, CME blocks at $1.92, CME barrels are $1.85. Uh, this bodes really well for USDA prices because there's a lag and eventually uh, that enthusiasm will catch up to our prices. And so this is um, really good news for what's coming down in the short term, at least. 
Um, if we look at non-fat dry milk, not quite as, um, you know, catching up on that wave of optimism. Um, you know, the USDA price lost 0.14 cents to, uh, point, uh, to 83 cents uh, per pound. But things at the CME are finally moving in the right direction. We had a gain of eight cents, uh, 11 cents from last week, nearly a dollar a pound. So again, some good price to CME should trickle down to our USDA price. It's a much slower growth, but that's what we've been seeing in powder market for the last year. So hopefully we can get back on that upward train that we had been on for the past um, year or so. And if we look outside the U.S., um, you know, powder price is really connected to global prices, and we're starting seeing some improvement outside too. So the latest global dairy trade auction, the average skim milk powder price went up eight cents to dollar sixteen. So still not skyrocketing price, but a little bit higher than where we're at. And so hopefully this will help pull our price higher. I've been mentioning the dry weight price. It's been, you know, 11 consecutive weeks in the 37 cents per pound range. It finally broke it this week and reached into the 38 cents per pound range. So this is, um, you know, very slow, but very good news also. Um, there's a big report, USDA released its milk production report this week that is probably, you know, less of an exciting point because it looks like milk production in the U.S. was still relatively strong in April. The April volume was up 1.4% from a year ago. Um, you know, with all the reports of dumping, I think people are expecting maybe that it wouldn't be um, that positive. But that being said, you know, 2020 started with a uh, momentous gain. And so clearly, as you know, a lot of dairies had added uh, cows to the herd, the herd had, had been growing nationally. And so once you get that going, it just takes a little bit of time to reverse that trend that was going up. And so without the crisis, I, I, would, ex I would expect this number would have been uh, higher. And in California in particular, we had a very small year-over-year -year growth, just up 0.3%, and the gains were on the milk per cow side, as the state's herd is still smaller than it was um, a year ago. And of interest in terms of California, we had a lot of reports of milk being dumped around the U.S., and people were wondering how much milk was dumped uh, in April in the state, and USDA just released some information, and it was just under 1% of all the milk pooled under the federal order in California that was uh, reported dumped. And so if you think about, you know, maybe two thirds of the milk in California is pooled, that means much smaller percentage than 1% was dumped in April. And so that's good that there wasn't, um, you know, as big volume loss as uh, some previously noted could potentially happen with the supply chain issues. So this concludes my market update for this week. And I will throw it back to Paul and Melissa for an environmental update. Talk to you next week. I want to welcome back to the podcast, Paul Souza, Western United Dairies Director of Environmental Affairs. Paul's here today with an update for us about the CV Salt program. So welcome, Paul. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Melissa. Thank you for the opportunity again to speak to our members and uh, update them on what's going on. Absolutely. Well, this is an important program, Paul. It's um, been going on a really long time, and now kind of interestingly in the middle of all this COVID-19 pandemic, it's actually coming to fruition. The planning and, and all the work that's gone into it is becoming a real program. And so can you just share with us yeah. a little bit about CB Salts, Paul, and its history? Yeah, sure. Uh, it started back in 2006, uh, and the dairy industry and uh, lots of other industry has been at the table. Um, we are kind of in a conundrum with our water quality regulations that require us to meet drinking water standards in the water, you know, right underneath our corrals and our cropland. Uh, and we found that's generally not possible. That's not reasonable to require drinking water standards uh, underneath uh, ag land like that. Any ag land could be almond trees or any other. Uh, we're finding challenges in meeting that. And so this um, allows for some more flexibility and more time in the water quality standards uh, to meet those under our facilities and come up with technologies that do that. So we've been interested in this and been engaged in it uh, for a long time because there are benefits to dairy producers as well as um, farmers and others that hold permits with the water board. And so it's a positive thing. Uh, it comes with some trade-offs. It's definitely a compromise situation. So we're getting some flexibility in uh, our regulations. And um, in return, uh, we do have to provide clean drinking water to those that might be affected uh, by the activities, uh, be they a wastewater treatment plant or a dairy or an almond farm. Um, we're having to do something about that to make sure that folks have clean drinking water. It's the fastest way to get safe drinking water to folks, uh, and then it also allows for flexibility 
for uh, those with a permit with the water board so that they can meet their permit requirements. And I think, you know, nobody envisioned uh, this situation. Yeah, this has been a long time coming. Uh, we knew this, this would be happening about this time, um, but nobody envisioned, you know, like everything else, uh, that this has gotten in the way. So there has been a delay in uh, getting this started until folks can meet, because once this happens, there's going to be a need for uh, folks to get together and decide how to uh, implement this. Okay, so yeah, there's it's just a little bit of a delay, but um, they're kind of overcoming some of those challenges with getting people in a room. There's some stuff happening electronically, exactly. and, and the letters, as you mentioned, are going out next Friday to producers. Yeah, yeah so uh, those letters were scheduled to go out at the end of March, but because of everything okay. going on, uh, they, were, they are scheduled to go out uh, next Friday, May 29th, so dairy producers should be receiving them um, first week of June. Uh, want folks to be on the lookout for those. Uh, I think it's a very important, uh, you know, thing to be on the lookout for, to be aware of, uh, and to be prepared for as those letters come out, um, and you know that folks are aware of what's happening and what they need to do. Um, there's going to be another letter about a month later. The first one that comes out, the one next Friday, is from the uh, nitrate control program, um, and that kicks off a 270-day clock to form local management zones and submit a preliminary management zone proposal in priority one areas. This is not everywhere in the Central Valley. It's only specific priority one areas in the Central Valley that have to submit these, um, prepare these uh, management zones and uh, submit the um, management zone proposals. And those areas would be the Modesto, Turlock, Chowchilla, Kings, Cahuilla, and Thule sub, uh, groundwater basins. Okay. So those those are the, it, the only those folks in those areas will be getting these letters, and then uh, those letters require that folks form these management zones. And I encourage dairy producers to um, be aware of their local management zone and either participate in the formation of that management zone or make sure that there is someone on that management zone board that represents your interests. Good. Okay. So, um, Paul, if producers have questions or they're concerned or something about the letters, maybe confusing or just they just want to talk about it, they can give you a call or an email yep. and you can work, walk them through the process. Yes, I would be happy to answer their questions. Um, I can direct them to a local person that is uh, managing the startup of their uh, management zone. I've got a list of folks here in the different management zones. I will be including that list in an article that I plan to write. Um, for our weekly update. There will be more information in there, specifically who you can contact at your local level, who's managing the startup of your local management zone. So I, I'm happy to answer questions uh, more along CV Salt, its history, what it does, what it means. Um, we're also looking at the Central Valley Dairy Representative Monitoring Program, which most dairies in the Central Valley are a member of, um, handling some of their compliance for this. So we're hoping to make this as smooth and painless for dairies as possible. So, uh, you know, please watch. Dairies may not have to do much because that monitoring program may actually, um, you know, pick up the bulk of the work. They may not have to respond to that letter, but dairies need to be aware um, if something did happen. They need to follow up with that, that they, in fact, are covered under this, or do they need to um, respond to the letter themselves? So yeah. they should confirm that, you know, somehow, either through their own response to the letter or through the monitoring program, um, that, you know, they have responded to the letter. But not every dairy is going to have to respond individually to this letter. And, again, it depends on the monitoring program, the Central Valley Dairy Representative Monitoring Program, um, kind of lining some things up like they're trying to do at this point. And, and it looks like that's going to happen, but we need to be sure that if that doesn't happen, you know, folks, in fact, um, have responded individually. Great. Well, at the very least, we'll get producers good information about what program they're under, what region they're in, and um, yeah, we'll get guys rolling on this. It's, it's another one of those things that's sort of a, a frustrating extra thing we have to do, but as you explained, this is really for a good purpose. So, yes. you know, luckily yes. it's nice that we can have a regulatory program that's also serving a really um, good purpose for dairies at this point in time. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, you know, it's difficult in the regulatory arena, especially in California. Um, you know, there's a lot of challenges and a lot of new mandates. This is one that is beneficial to dairy. It's going to help our dairies. Um, I don't know if I mentioned specifically, it is Central Valley focused. Uh, this only applies in Water Board Region 5 uh, from Tehama County to Kern County. 
but all dairies in that region uh, will be affected by this. Uh, again, the letters are only going to priority one area, so if you're a dairy that's not in one of those areas that I mentioned, you won't be getting a letter, uh, but there are priority two areas which would be um, going through this process in two to four years. So okay. they would be, you know, potentially uh, following along and maybe, you know, there will be a template and there will be a process set for them by the time they start that. But these first six uh, su uh, groundwater sub-basins will be the first uh, to go. Great. So I guess if, if dairies don't get a letter, don't feel left out. Your turn exactly. might be coming. Okay. Yeah. Well, good information, Paul. Is there anything else we should share with our members in the in the regulatory arena this week? Any updates? Yeah, that's a good reminder. So uh, we're here at the end of May uh, for dairies in the Central Valley. Again, their annual reports are due July 1st. Uh, by this point, they've become habit, and I'm sure, you know, they're working on it and working with their consultants. But there is uh, one new little twist this year uh, that maybe warrants a reminder, and that is that uh, the Central Valley Water Board adopted a bovine uh, permit, and it applies to beef feedlots, but it also applies to dairy, heifer, and calf ranches. So uh, if our dairy producers and members are um, have a separate calf ranch or a heifer ranch that is regulated under the bovine order, this is the first year that an annual report is required for that. That annual report can be downloaded off of the Central Valley Dairy Representative Monitoring Program's website. Uh, it's posted up there for downloading to be submitted to the regional board by July 1st. And given that this is the first time, that may not be habit yet, although I'm sure in a few years it will just be a regular part of um, the routine. And so I just wanted to remind folks of that since that is a little bit different for those that are regulated by that. Great. Well, good reminders and um, good updates for those that are coming into that first year of compliance or reporting anyway with that bovine order. So, Paul, we really appreciate you taking the time. Um, we're going to have you back in a couple of weeks with a little bit more information on the, the bovine order and the reporting deadlines that are coming up. But thanks so much for the information about CB Salt today. We'll talk with you soon. Sure. Thank you, Melissa. And Melissa had a chance to sit down with one of our friends from Western Milling, Mark Krebsbach, a commodity trader, to chat about the effects of COVID-19 and subsequent market disruptions on the feed protein markets. So let's jump right into that. I am so pleased to welcome to the podcast my good friend, Mark Krebsbach. Mark is a commodities trader with Western Milling. So thanks so much, Mark, for joining us today on Seen and Heard. Thanks, Melissa. I'm glad to be here with you. Mark is a good friend of mine from my days in ag leadership, and he was so gracious to allow me to bother him on his, the beginning of his long weekend here. So we're just going to talk a little bit about some producer questions related to how the commodities markets have been looking um, in light of COVID-19 and then maybe what producers can expect going forward. So, Mark, if you don't mind, would you give us a little background on yourself and your position with Western Milling? Sure. Uh, well, I grew up in Iowa. So I'm a bit of an import to California, went to Iowa State University, uh, worked in Minneapolis for one of the large uh, grain cooperatives in the country, and then moved out to California about 20 years ago, and I've been trading feed commodities since then. Currently, I am the uh, corn uh, director of grain trading for Western Milling. Great. Well, thanks, and we're excited for the expertise you bring to the program today, Mark. Um, so we'll just kick it right off. Um, what have you seen as one of the biggest challenges to your job or the, the feed industry due to the current COVID-19 pandemic? Sure, sure. So originally when the uh, you know, pandemic came to light, my biggest concern as a uh, corn trader was how the railroad would handle this because we've seen where our transportation uh, has been severely interrupted from a driving perspective. Uh, gasoline demand um, went to 50% practically overnight uh, in the last week of March and the first week of April. And uh, from a supply standpoint, pretty worried. How is the railroad, the UP and the BN, going to handle this? What if a conductor uh, gets COVID? Are they going to shut down the train? Do they have to clean the whole train? How long is it going to sit? Because in the past, uh, our biggest issues in California is we're kind of at the end of the earth, and we're really dependent um, on the railroads delivering grain in a timely and predictable manner out mm -hmm. of California. And um, thankfully, we haven't seen any disruptions in our rail supply due to the COVID situation. 
And now I will say that we have seen a really big impact uh, once again due to the gasoline demand because the ethanol industry in particular has been severely impacted by this. So as we look at uh, ethanol production, it is a direct additive to our gasoline. There's about 10% ethanol in the gasoline. And when our gasoline demand went down 50% due to the lack of driving because everyone's sheltering at place, all of a sudden we have this pipeline of ethanol, which is mostly transported by rail out to okay. different refineries across the country. Um, all of a sudden they've got thousands of cars stacking up at the refineries. And they had to say, hey, wait, we don't need any more. And this created a huge backlog at destinations and as well at the origins. So plants, uh, the ethanol plants had to uh, basically shut down. Uh, so during the month of April and now uh, here going into May, we're probably seeing the industry down about 40% overall in production. Where that's impactful to us in the feed industry, we depend a lot on DDG coming out to uh, California right. via rail. Um, additionally, there's a lot of dairies in California that also feed a lot of wet distillers coming out of plants such as our pig free Madeira and Stockton. Okay. So that, that's been pretty impactful. And um, like many industries, the ethanol guys have uh, seen a lot of red ink uh, due to this disruption in run times. Uh, they've seen margins go tremendously negative, and um, it's been very disruptive to their industry. Interesting. And so, you know, in light of that, as dairymen try to tighten things up and, and plan for the future as they're seeing their own market disruptions and their own paycheck issues, um, and we know feed is a huge area of cost on farms, I guess, I guess the question that comes up is they're curious what, um, you think the feed markets are headed towards in the next two months or maybe the next six months. Do you have any ideas about how the market disruptions you guys are seeing are going to, um, you know, impact the, the way we feed cattle going forward? Well, we've seen a lot of volatility as a result of the disruptions uh, in the market, specifically to the ethanol market. Um, initially, when those plants went down, we saw DDG prices spike higher. Those prices have since now come down to more reasonable levels than what I would call more appropriate. Um, but we, you know, sometimes there's a lag in there, right? Where right. cars are out, now the plants are shut down. And sometimes that creates a little gap before you get the next slug of inventory to come out to destination. But the prices have come down. So the next 35, 45 days, you could see values firm up because uh, we're waiting for cars to get shipped again because of so many plants have uh, taken downtime. Um, as we look at uh, the corn crop, corn has gotten planted very well this year. It's, it's planted okay. early. It got, it got a great start. Uh, planting conditions were the best many areas have seen in the last 20 years and um, good subsoil moisture, and it uh, got planted. Got a little frost on it uh, early on, but I think the plants are still just coming out of the ground, so not a significant amount of damage on that. Uh, but Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska, and Illinois, which is the heart of the Corn Belt, well, those guys got in early, and the crop is looking good. Uh, ironically, they probably like to see a little bit of heat right now, which I, I think is on their way, and that will really get that crop going. Um, with the crop being so early, much earlier than last year, you know, as a comparison, um, you know, the crop was 80% planted as of uh, Monday. Last year was only 45%. Right. That's right. We had that wet year last year in the Midwest. Okay. Yeah. Last year was awful. And you had a lot of prevent acres, which really impacted soybeans most of all because the guys uh, planted corn uh, much later than they really wanted to. So soybean acres uh, get cut uh, quite a bit as a result of that. But, um, you know, when the corn gets planted here, I mean, here we are, May 20th, Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska are all done. It means corn should get tasseling early. It means it should avoid late summer heat. And uh, therefore, many of the stresses that we see um, that can impact corn yields, hopefully we, uh, we should be able to avoid many of those stresses with the early planting. Great. So good outlook for the country's corn crop. That's 
that means things are headed in the right direction monetary-wise for producers on that front, too, it seems like. Well, you know, they're, they're looking at uh, pretty cheap prices. So, yeah. if, you know, the dairy... <laughs> that was my professional way of saying, oh, good, cheap corn. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, there's uh, two ways of looking at that, right? Are you a producer or a consumer? And from the production yeah. side, they're looking at pretty cheap corn prices. Uh, you know, once the uh, ethanol demand looked like that was backing off, we really saw the corn board and corn base that's really back off in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, dairies out in California are probably enjoying some pretty cheap corn, as cheap as they've seen it here in a long time, especially in the front end. Um, as we look forward into the new crop, if we assume that the crop is going to continue to develop and yields follow through, uh, we're looking at what is a record uh, ending stocks for next year, uh, as large as we've seen going back to the 1980s. You know, we're looking yeah. over three. We're looking over three billion bushels. Uh, when you look at uh, this year's ending stocks, uh, we're looking at around uh, two billion, give or take. You know, I'm rounding here a little bit. 2.1 mm-hmm. billion bushels. So, to, uh, you know, we're going to end up with 50 percent more than we have this year. So overall, that really looks to be bearish to corn pricing going into the fall. Right. If you're a dairyman, that's a good that's good news. If you're a corn farmer, it's not the best news. Looking at the the next couple right. of months. Right. You know, and I think the government is uh, looking at uh, uh, funding them somehow. You know, some of the recent uh, bills that they proposed have some funding. Grain farmers, so I think that that puts some cash in their pockets, and that's going to allow farmers to wait and see what happens. It probably prevents them from marketing corn nearby. I think okay. this just kind of pushes this thing uh, to July August step before you see real corn sales by the Midwest farmers as a result. Okay. Well, good information. Now, I'm going to ask a little bit of a, a tough one here, Mark. We um, obviously, Western Milling has customers, and your customers pay you to do a lot of this kind of work for them. So, we don't want to step on any toes here. Um, we'll, we'll give you a shout out for the company and, and you know, encourage our dairymen to look into working with you. But um, if you could share with us, if you're comfortable, how you're advising customers on maybe when they should contract and when they should stay on the spot market with some of these things. Sure. Um, you know, I'll tell any dairyman, you know, you have to look at your own personal situation and, and you have to be comfortable with that decision and how it applies to you. So um, that's all about corn. You know, we just talked about how we're looking at some pretty good ending stocks potentially going into the new crop. Now, this is all subject to weather, right? Yeah. Which we're in May. Think, things are looking good. And if we get weather, we're going to have a big crop. And I feel like we're going to have cheap pricing. Me personally, I would buy quarterly um, mm. on corn. Okay. You know, so once you get in September, buy your O&D, and then once you get to the time frame, then buy Jamestown, and then so forth. I think that's okay. a pretty solid way of doing it this year because corn ending stocks look to be pretty strong. Uh, things that can get in the way of that can drive pricing higher. Uh, once again, is the weather. You know, if we get hot and dry, which has not been the case so far, but that can always change. You know, and then, uh, you know, the big uh, white elephant in the room is always China. What are those guys going to do? You know, we've got that big uh, new trade deal with them, and they're supposed to import billions of dollars of goods from us. You know, ag is the easiest thing for them to uh, import. And they have drawn down their corn supplies dramatically over the last couple of years. Corn's cheap. Uh, That could provide some demand to help give some support to corn pricing. So that, that's, that's the thing you have to really watch on that. Um, as we look at proteins, you know, canola is uh, a great feed. Uh, dairies love it. It works well on the ration. And uh, the reality is if you can get your clock canola uh, $280 or lower, I'm a believer you buy it. Uh, okay. It competes well with hay. And it seems like every year, we get a situation where our supply is disrupted because it comes from Canada. Oh. And, and whether it's a snowstorm, whether the government embargo is something for some reason, or it could be anything, you know, all of a sudden our crush is interrupted. 
because they can't find demand for oil. It just feels like every other year there's a problem with canola meal supply in the California and prices spike up to three and a quarter, uh, 350 bucks. So if you can get the uh, canola around 280 bucks, I mean, the reality is it's a good value and it's competitive with pay prices then. Okay, well, a little insider tip there. Thanks. Thanks for that, Mark. Is there anything else you'd like to add or share with our dairymen about kind of what's going on in your side of the industry or, or any advice you'd like to share with them? Well, you asked earlier how COVID is impacting everyone. Um, you know, I shared a little bit what our fear was from a supply standpoint. Uh, just from a company standpoint, you know, everyone's trying to uh, – maintain social distancing, if you will. Uh, we've had as many employees as possible working from home. Uh, personally, I'm working from home now, and uh, I know our company is requiring people to wear face masks at work now as a, as a method to make sure that we're safe for employees. And um, for how long, I don't know. Now, certainly, uh, I think it's through the month of June right now is what they're estimating. Um, but, you know, that's subject to change. So. Right. Right. I think um, I think we're all kind of waiting with bated breath to see how this happens. I know the goal we talked about earlier of, of all the shelter in place and all these different orders was to flatten the curve. And now that we've flattened the curve, I think kind of the citizens of our country are trying to figure out what's next. And I know I get that a lot with dairymen. We've had these conversations about, you know, what's next? How do we move to the next? you know, phase of this and anticipation of a, a vaccine or better treatment. So we're glad you're staying safe and, and working from home, Mark. And we just really thank you again for, for joining us and giving us a little bit of info on the feed market. Sure enough. Thanks for uh, asking me to join you. And uh, Melissa, you take care. You too. Take care, Mark. Happy Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Day. Thanks. Okay, well, we'd like to welcome to the podcast for the very first time our Director of Government Affairs, Jason Bryant. So welcome, Jason, to the podcast. Thank you, Melissa. Good to be here. Great. Well, Jason, um, just for our members who haven't heard from you yet or maybe don't know you, can you just introduce yourself real quick? Let us know a little bit about you and, and what your role is here at Western. Happy to. So I head up Government Affairs for Western United Dairies um, and be members of the association. And so my, my job is really to ensure that the voice of dairy producers is heard loud and clear um, in Sacramento, both in the state assembly, the state Senate, and with the governor's office and the, uh, the number of regulatory agencies that we uh, interact with um, on a consistent basis. So my job is really to deliver the message and to put together a strategy um, and to execute that strategy to ensure that, um, you know, families who are um, um, operating dairy farms across the state can be successful and have that certainty long term that they are an important asset uh, for the state and um, that they can continue to deliver a safe and affordable and reliable food supply, um, you know, given, you know, the difficult times that we have uh, been upon us. And so our job is to ensure that um, lawmakers and and, and folks in uh, positions of power really understand um, what's going on uh, with our with our farmers and, and how we can improve uh, the environment for uh, for our members. That's a really great great introduction, Jason. Thanks. And speaking of the difficult times and and how we're getting the word out about how hard our farmers are working, we've heard quite a bit from Anya in past episodes. But Western United has launched a statewide public relations campaign and. And we have been doing a ton of work just getting our members' faces out there and, and having them talk about what they're doing and how hard they're working in light of all this crazy and that, I'm going to use that word again, unprecedented times that we're in. But um, can you just give us a quick highlight on that public affairs program from your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, over the last two months, I think, um, in all parts of the state, you know, um, families have been really rocked by um, um the spread of COVID and, and obviously the state's uh, efforts to combat the spread of the disease, which has resulted into a pretty significant stay-at-home order, which has fundamentally changed our economy and has impacted our ability to um, go about our normal routines, which, is, which means uh, sending our kids to school, um, going to restaurants, uh, getting takeout, 
um, going to dinner parties. You know, all of the uh, things that we uh, were very comfortable and, and accustomed to have um, obviously been curtailed. And that means that um, people's habits and how they shop and, and procure um, you know, food in general has fundamentally shifted. And we've seen the impacts to the dairy industry directly. Um, the school lunch program is um, just a small slice of what it once was when school was in session. And of course, restaurants um, and um, hospitality venues have curtailed almost all of their, of their sales. And that's impacted our uh, operations and our uh, markets significantly. And so Western decided that it was important, um, given some of the concerns that fairly people had um, amidst this, uh, this outbreak. And that's, you know, can we ensure that the products that we're purchasing are safe? And how do we ensure that um, the dairy products that, we, uh, that are so sought after are available to the people that need them um, and the people that now are turning uh, to the grocery store on a daily or weekly basis to obtain all of those meals that they once uh, maybe took for granted a bit uh, because they were getting them from schools or getting them at work or getting them take out or to go or going to a restaurant. Now, you know, families are, are buying those products and, and making things at home. And, and uh, you know, you see uh, shortages of flour because people are baking at home uh, a lot more. And I think, um, you know, people are because they're making those purchases every day and, 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 um, and family shopping is, is increased at the market, people are looking at um, not only are those products available, but are they safe? And so Western decided to move forward with a, with a public affairs campaign starting in um, the late part of March to really underscore that um, um, California's dairy farmers produce the most sustainable, the most high quality, uh, and the best dairy products anywhere in the world. And that families can have confidence that as they go to the markets um, and go to some of the big box retailers even, that the products they're buying um, have a high degree of integrity and um, are often sourced within you know, 20 to 30 miles of where they're being purchased. Um, and something that they can have confidence that they can uh, nourish and feed their families um, and get through this um, very difficult time, both economically and I think socially. Um, and so we worked really hard to elevate uh, that dialogue to ensure that um, customers knew that um, cows can't um, obtain COVID and, and, um, and if individual has uh, con contracted the virus that it can't be um, uh, cross crossed into uh, animal sectors. And so our food supply is safe. Uh, our dairy farmers are coming, uh, are waking up every day working hard to deliver those products amidst very challenging economic situations. Um, and that's gonna help get um, California through this very difficult patch, which we seem to be um, moving uh, on from as the governor is modifying the state's stay-at-home order. And so I think the campaign was really timely and, and underscoring the value and the role that dairy men and women play every day to ensuring um, the delivery of that food supply, even under the most challenging set of circumstances that we've seen in maybe several generations. So we're really proud of the campaign. Great. And I think one of the big things for me as just a, a field rep and someone who works with Dairyman was the ability to have a lot of different platforms. We had press conferences, we had webinars, there were social media live events. So there was an opportunity for people of all different walks of life to engage with our producers, which seemed like a really beneficial way for, for them to yeah. communicate their own story. So it was a, I think that was a huge positive aspect of the campaign. Yeah, we took advantage of technology. You know, maybe in, in under normal circumstances, we may have not um, been forced to do that because, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in, in normal circumstances, you might uh, call the press corps together and get two or three television cameras to cover your events. And, and because of COVID and because of the heightened um, um, concerns and, and awareness and questions about the safety of our food supply, our first press conference, I think we had over 20 reporters covering it. Some were calling in remotely. Yeah. Some of them were monitoring the, um, the uh, press conference through a live Facebook feed. Some of them uh, were there in person um, wearing obviously protective gear uh, and, and um, adopting social distancing. Um, and some, you know, did it the old fashioned way. And, and then many of them called um, um, later on in the week to follow up. And so, we really kind of embraced um, maybe a new way of engaging with the media, which is you've got to be available um, uh, to answer the call 
when you get it um, on a variety of platforms, not just the ones that maybe we were comfortable with maybe a month or so ago. Awesome. Well, Jason, as we've all heard, you know, as times have changed, the priorities for our government affairs sector have really changed at Western United this year. There's a few things that kind of are hanging on, some issues that are still going to be debated in the Capitol this year, but our priorities have shifted a bit. And I'm just wondering if you could kind of go through the list of priorities that we talked about yesterday at the board meeting and maybe give us a quick update on some things that have changed and some things we're still working through. You bet. Um, since the um, um, since the beginning of this outbreak, um, obviously the state's economy has been severely impacted. We're seeing um, unemployment rates uh, in the 20% range, um, something we haven't seen in, in you know multiple generations. Um, and um, obviously the the downturn in the economy, although it might be temporary, will have an impact on this um, existing state budget. And so, as the legislature and the governor are um, going through the state's finances and deciding which um, initiatives or policies um, will move forward. It's all going to be based on how much um, the state has by way of resources in order to pay for those priorities. And that comes, of course, by way of, of tax policy. And with an um, economy that has certainly uh, taken a downturn, that's going to impact the state budget significantly. And so we do have a structural budget deficit of approximately $50 billion or more. Um, as of um, as of May fourteenth, uh, when the mm -hmm. governor submitted his new budget, that's going to have an impact on the kinds of bills that move forward. Um, and we've heard directly from the governor and from the legislature that unless a piece of legislation is absolutely necessary to address COVID nineteen and help the state combat the spread of the virus and adapt to um, uh, the situation that we have, or it addresses wildfires and wildfire preparedness or that piece of legislation deals with homelessness and housing that it probably shouldn't be considered uh, this year and mm -hmm. so we had anticipated a number of, of issues with respect to um, how the air resources board looks at um, and regulates um, the production of dairy in california a bill that uh, we thought was certainly going to be a battle uh, for us in our government affairs program here in, in the capital um, but as it turns out Bills of that nature that, again, are not directly, directly related to COVID, wildfires, or homelessness and housing are not getting the attention that they normally would in a, in a normal year. And so we're, um, while we are uh, pleased that um, bills that are not urgent that would be concerning for us as producers will not move forward this year, we know that those issues are probably on deck for 2021. Um, if there is additional uh, bandwidth to consider other issues. And we know that there will be eventually. So we're spending this time preparing for the issues that we know that we will see uh, next year and maybe the year after mm -hmm. um, while we are um, responding to um, really this crisis that we're seeing and, uh, and addressing um, the constraints that our producers are seeing in the marketplace. But so we're not while we're not seeing the legislative activity that we normally would see, we are absolutely preparing for for exactly what we anticipate we will see next year uh, by way of, of bills that are that are not often um, um, uh, helpful, uh, frankly, right. to the industry and, and can make it more difficult uh, for dairy producers to look ahead and have that certainty as they begin to plan their businesses over the next year to two to ten years ahead. Well, Jason, is there anything else you want to give us an update on before we let you escape for the long weekend? Yeah. Well, um, it, it's been a, a real pleasure to to spend, you know, in a normal year, we would be um, working the Capitol daily basis, testifying on bills, uh, working on issues that uh, normally would have a lot of discussion and an appetite uh, to advance in a, in a normal session. And because... Um, uh, the issue around COVID and the state's response to combat the virus and to, um, you know, help this economy move through this very difficult time. Um, it gave us a window um, and maybe we didn't know it when it first kicked off, but it gave the organization a window and an opportunity to really highlight the men and women that make up this association who mm -hmm. get up every day uh, to deliver a safe and available food supply that millions of Californians count on every day and probably took for granted 60 days ago. But when they went to the Amazon uh, or went to uh, 
Instacart or went on and, and tried to order uh, basic necessities, um, and they realized that those were maybe more challenging to get than they were just weeks before that, I think people really became concerned that how do we ensure that we can continue to live a high quality of life and deliver, um, it, you know, three squares every day. Um, and, and I think we took um, the initiative to highlight the work that our members do every day to ensure that, that that family has those options and those are readily available at the grocery store, and they largely have been. And um, I think that's something we're really proud of, um, something that we weren't anticipating 60 days ago. But as soon as it became clear that everybody was talking about maybe where their next box of groceries were coming from, Western United Dairy stepped up and helped educate the public about how that process works. So we're really happy about it, and I, I think this kind of effort will continue um, to showcase that um, the work that we do uh, impacts and improves and enhances the quality of life of our residents, and that's something we should not ever take for granted. And maybe it takes a crisis for us to kind of um, put that into clear focus, and um, but it takes initiative to make for sure people understand that, and I think that's what we've accomplished. Absolutely. Yeah, I um, I think we've done a good job. We can all be, and especially you can be proud of the way this has, you know, played out so far and just the idea that consumers are getting a good primer on not only where their food comes from, but how it gets to them and, and really taking the time to appreciate the people that produce it, the people that process it, the people that haul it in trucks and deliver it to the grocery store. So I think we're moving in a, in a good direction. And just to uh, take us to a little bit of a lighter note, Jason, one more burning question we had. Yeah. What can you uh, what can you tell us about owl boxes? <laughs> so, you know, we've all had a little bit of extra time on our hands. Let's be honest. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're also working hard and committed to our jobs and the people that um, we stand for and represent. But we've all had a few few more hours than we normally would have maybe to, to tinker around the house. And, and so, um I, I grabbed some, some scrap wood and materials out of the garage, <laughs> stuff that I had just kind of been holding on to that I probably would have thrown away and decided to build an owl box because I saw one on a, on a cool, on a cool outdoor show. So now I'm the proud owner of a handmade self-built self-designed, a 10 foot tall owl box that uh, I get to stare out in my backyard. Now all I have to do is wait for the owls. Well, we want to update. read on the internet. It, apparently, it takes five years just to get an owl. So we may be oh, waiting no. a while, but the owl box looks good. <laughs> Mine's still sitting in the garage. I built one a couple of years ago because I heard such great things about um, their abilities to quell the gopher issues. So yeah. I haven't put it up yet, but now I'm a little nervous that I'm going to have to wait for the owls. But we'll definitely need an update when your new residents move in. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully they're not the squirrels. Keep the squirrels out of the owl box. Oh, yeah, they make a mess. Gosh, <laughs> owls will come take care of them, hopefully. Well, thanks yeah. so much, Jason. We appreciate your time. I know we're headed into a long weekend, and we can't thank you enough for joining us. And have a great Memorial Day, and, and keep up the good work. Enjoy your through your, your holiday weekend, and, and be safe. Thanks. Thanks again. Okay, Darby. Well, I think we're coming to the end of the episode this week. A good, long episode to get our producers through the long weekend with some great information about commodity markets, what's been going on in Sacramento, and all the fun stuff that's happening on the environmental front. And, uh, of course, Annie's good news about the uh, markets, which will definitely bring a little bit of cheer, hopefully, to everyone's weekend. Yeah, and to round out today's episode, we're going to jump into member questions with a few questions that you and I have been getting about the details of the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. And a big shout-out to Annie for helping us with these answers. Yeah, so the one big question I have been getting from producers is how they should submit proof of their production records. Yeah, and to complete the CFAP application, producers will need sales, inventory, and other records. However, since CFAP is a self-certification program, this documentation will not need to be submitted with the application. Because applicants are subject to spot check and will be required to provide documentation, producers should retain the documentation that they use to complete the application. Great. And speaking of that application, where can I find the form to apply for it, Darby? Just like all good things right now, it will be posted online at www.farmers.gov backslash CFAP. That's www.farmers.gov backslash CFAP. And that um, is going to get posted on May 26th. 
so May 26th, is there a deadline that I need to apply by? Yes. So August 28th of this year is the deadline, but I would suggest making a phone appointment with your local FSA as early as possible, ideally next week, especially if you have not connected with FSA before. I feel like most of our members have a working relationship with their local FSA office, but you should reach out as soon as possible and make an appointment because they're going to be busy. Yeah, I think they're going to be um, glad to have the work, but also a little overwhelmed, especially for the first few days. So what, um, one of the big questions is we've heard a lot about the caps and how those work. What type of legal entities can be eligible to a higher cap than that original $250,000? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of questions kind of surrounding how the structure of this works. So corporations, LLCs, and LPs can have up to three individual owners qualify for payments up to that $250,000 limit if they are actively engaged in the operation of the farm. So if you own a teeny percentage of the farm, but you work as a lawyer in San Francisco, that's not going to look as good as if you spend your 400 hours a week on the farm. So that brings your total to a potential of 750000 And again, like I said, that actively engaged is uh, provided at least 400 hours of active personal labor, active personal management, or a combination thereof with respect to the production of those 2019 commodities. So there's many questions that remain kind of as we move into the finer details of the program. And as soon as we have that information, we will let everybody who's interested know. You can drop Annie an email if you would like to get on the list. That's Annie, A-N-N-I-E, at wudairies.com. Great. Well, I think that's some good information for today. We want to wish everybody a safe and fun long weekend. Hope you get to get out and enjoy the good weather and add a little bit of dairy. We're just hint hinting there to your weekend <laughs> barbecue plans. Um, and we just hope you guys have a great time. Stay well, stay safe, but please enjoy, enjoy this long weekend celebrating our veterans. Exactly. And remember to reach out to us in any way that you prefer with questions, comments, or content requests. Our email is wud.pod at gmail.com. And then my email is darby, D-A-R-B-Y, at wudairies.com. And you can reach Melissa at M-L-E-M-A at wudairies.com. And remember, if you're following us on one of your favorite podcast platforms, to please rate, review, and subscribe so you can be notified when we drop a new episode. Great. Well, have a great weekend, Darby, and happy Memorial Day, everyone. You too. Special thanks to Western United Dairy's 2020 business sponsors, Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, FNR Ag Services, Farm Credit Alliance, Moss Energy Works, and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information about how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at woodairies.com. That's I-N-F-O at W-U-D-A-I-R-I-E-S dot com.